I'll give a wave like this just to let you know that that joke is over. Okay. I misbehave on stage, but I'm better than when I wasn't sober. Okay, so uh, I've sobered up. There's still some blackouts. And uh, I worked in hymens and survived tornadoes and trailers, but that don't mean I won't put in my two later having a good time baby having a good time baby we're having a real good time we're having a good time baby having a good time baby i'll tell you one more time oh yeah we're having a good time yeah we're having a good time okay welcome welcome ladies and gentlemen to the We're Having a Good Time podcast. Uh, my name is Dusty Slay, and I'm here with my co-host and producer, Hannah Hogan. Hey, Dusty. Uh, welcome. That microphone sounds better. I tried to adjust it a little bit. Uh, it sounds better. Uh, we're back. We got a lot going on. We're going to do... Uh, I've decided to try to break the Spectracide story down into several stories instead of just doing two. I uh, did a Spectracide Part 1 a while back. That was my first four years into Spectracide. I'll launch into all of it in a bit. Uh, first, uh, uh, welcome. It's going to be exciting to do this. I'm going to try to spread it out the years, and I'm going to talk about being at Spectracide and also what else was going on in my life at the time. Uh, could be exciting, could be like... Dang, that's boring. But who knows? I think it's going to be an exciting time. As long as you're excited to talk about it, we're going to be excited to listen. Well, thank you, Hannah. Yeah. I think uh, I think that you're right. Because you ever hear people tell a story, and then they'll go, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, blah, blah, blah. Like, if you're not interested in telling me the story, why should I be interested in listening? You know? Oh. Uh, so, but first, let's do a little where we've been, where we're going. Where they going? Where they been? Where they going? Where, where they been? Where we're going, where we've been. Where we're going, where we've been. Where are we going? Nowhere. I had shows, that I had a show this weekend in Washington State. It has been canceled. So, we're going nowhere that's so frustrating it is frustrating i want this nation to open up me too i'm gonna be honest with you i am ready to go i get that people are getting sick but we gotta figure it out because yeah i mean how long can i not work you know what i mean how long can these venues survive so either way i'm not gonna dwell on it we got a lot to talk about they did get canceled so i have no gigs this weekend and where have we been well, we haven't been anywhere for gigs, but what we have been doing is looking for land. We thought we might want to buy a little plot of land, maybe to build a house on one day, maybe to farm on, or maybe a getaway if the country collapses. You know what I mean? Who knows? We're looking for some land. So we took a drive um, around different parts of Tennessee. We've been through all kind of mountain roads, way deep into some hollows, uh, we've seen some wild stuff, but the first day we went down to Linville, uh, Linville, Tennessee. I'm not familiar with it. It's just on the other side of Columbia, which is where our old roommate Cody lived, uh, where he was from. And recently we just saw him on the mayor's Twitter page. 
talking about mask. Okay, so um, we're in Linville. We're in Linville, and we've gone to find this uh, land. The land has a house on it, but the house is unlivable. So we're just looking at the land, but we're using the house to identify the house. We got a little lost because on land, it doesn't have a real address. It's like a zero center lane. So we have to just find it somewhere on center lane. So we we eventually, uh, we went down a lot of different roads, some dirt roads. We mistaken another abandoned house for the land. Uh, we turned down one road. There was a vulture right in the middle of the road, and it looked like... Uh, it looked like the forest in the movie A Princess Bride. When you go in there, everything's dark. There's fire shooting out of weird places, and there was a vulture in the middle of the road, and we thought, maybe we don't take this trail. Well, the whole time throughout our travels in the nether regions of Tennessee, I felt like I was in the movie Deliverance. Yeah. So I that's mean, where I was at with it. I mean, you know, being a Southerner, you know, I don't ever want to um, – uh, criticize places of the South, but yeah, I mean, certain times we were deep in a mountain road somewhere yeah. and it, the signal was gone and it was like, I hope the car doesn't break down now. Yeah. I mean, I've lived in Tennessee for four years and I've traveled around this country quite a bit, but I always would take the interstates. Let me tell you something. You take one step out of Nashville you're in Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. <I> mean, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's got some West Virginia vibes going uh, on with it. It is true. So we're down in Linville and we found the land. We pull into the one car driveway. Uh, we get out. We're looking at the land. We talk about it. We, you know, we, we talk about the kind of farm we could grow, what we could do, what we like, what we don't like. And then we're ready to leave. So we go to leave, and a truck pulls off. And now this this road that the land is off of is like a main highway of the area. Like, it's not that busy. Probably four pass, four cars passed, and we were there 30 minutes. But it's not abandoned, right? So this car, this truck comes up down this road, and then he pulls in right behind us, but he can't get in all the way. Uh, so he's sticking out in the road, and his car has writing all over the side. His truck has writing all over the side. It's his name. Uh, should we say his name? Is that okay? Uh, his name, let's say his name's Chris. And he has a name uh, on the side of the truck, and he's like a, a wedding DJ, and uh, he does all kind of things, and it's all listed on the side. And he pulls up next to us, and he's a weird-looking dude. Um a bit overweight, but also looks like he just lost some weight. Like a weird combination in there in between. Uh, very nice. Uh, bad teeth. Um, got an old dog, a chocolate lab puppy, laying on the center console. It, it just just laying there, drinking water. The, car, the dog's not even phased that we're in there talking. The truck smells weird. Uh, but I'm talking to the guy. Very nice. He tells me he's from New York, and he's been down here for a while. And I, uh, he said, I'm from Syracuse. And I was like, oh, I've been up there. And he said, what for? And I got a bad habit of telling people that I'm a comedian. And uh, up to this point, his truck's still running. You know, he's just kind of casually talking. I go, well, I do comedy. And he cuts the truck off. And now I know we're locked into a talk. We're ready to leave. And we're locked into a talk. But you know what? I'm chatting the guy up. He hands me his card. He said, I'm also a booking agent. Uh, they talk a little bit more. Hannah tells him I already have an agent. 
And then we just talk for a while. And he tells us about his ex-wife and how she said he was too high maintenance. But now he's down here in Tennessee and he's about to record his album. I'm not refuting any of those things. Those things could all be true. And uh, <laughs> and so we're talking. I'm actually having a good time talking to him, but it's also like one of those things where it's like, I could end this right now and we could get in the car and drive away. But he seems like a lonely guy. So people start walking down the street to an older couple is coming our way. Or as I experienced it, people started coming out of the forest. <laughs> yeah, they're coming out of the woodwork, that's for sure. And I thought they were just more people looking to talk. Like, here's a, here's a person to talk to. And I said to Chris in the truck, I said, uh, uh, do you know those people? Uh, and he looked up at them. He said, yeah, they own the land. They'll tell you about it in a real haste. And then he cr cranked the truck up and drove off just in a hurry. And I was like, oh, wow, I thought I'd never be out of that. And now I'm out of it. And then the lady walks up and she's like looking at me. And I was like, oh, hey. Uh, and then the guy is still coming in the distance. He's still walking. The lady's already there. They're older, gray hair. The guy's got a handlebar, a white handlebar mustache. And he's like, uh, I was like, oh, hey, I said, we just, you know, we got this listing uh, off some, you know, off from our real estate agent. And uh, we're just down here looking at the land. And Chris pulled up and we were just talking to him. And the guy goes, oh, he ain't nobody. And, and I thought, well, that's such a mean thing to say. But that was only a split second I had to think that because this is what he said. He goes, oh, he ain't nobody. That's a New York child molester. That's what he is. And I was just like, now, keep in mind, we had already noticed a trailer on the corner, and the road was named Screamer Road, right? We had already pointed that out, that that was a weird road. And he goes, yeah, I live up in that trailer there. Now, I don't know that the guy is what they claim he is. Right? They could just be in a feud. As Hannah says, I don't know if he was more offended. Oh, oh, oh. yeah. I, I couldn't tell if he was more offended that he was from New York or if he was a child molester. Yeah, he it goes, really wasn't clear. He goes, that's a New York child molester. <laughs> that's what he is. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, again, I don't And then all of a sudden we're implicated because... Oh, we're, yeah. we're talking to him like they're like trying to figure out what these with this child molester oh, doing yeah. on and, his land and who oh, we yeah. are. Yeah, he said that's why he sped off like that. We don't allow him on our property. And <laughs> you're like, well, and then I'm like, listen, I don't know him. I said his name was on the side of his truck. I was just talking to him. He pulled up here. I don't know him. And. We talked to them for a while and they got real friendly and they were telling us all about the land and. And then that, that ended. We got out of there, and we were pretty happy about it. You know, and as we're driving away, I mean, because we talked to those two folks for at least another 10 minutes, and they really warmed up, and they were telling us all about the land and how it pitches into a, a, for, uh, a cliff, and we could go up and we could look at it. Then I got in the car and I thought, you know, if you're trying to sell this land, maybe don't tell us that there's a child molester living beside us. Yeah. I mean, well, it's good to know. I mean, you know. Well, like, I suppose. Yeah. From, from our perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but 
I don't know what drew us to uh, the DJ, uh, the supposed, you know, the New York DJ. I don't know what had him looking at us, but we had a good time talking to him. And I don't know if he is what he's accused of being. So, Well, people just like talking to you. You're friendly and you got a deep voice. I guess so. Especially like rural people. I feel like they instantly connect to your ruralality as well. Well, I like to get in there. I did say this to Hannah, and Hannah thinks that I that I was getting on to her. But at one point, there was this old there was an old house on the land, and at one point, the DJ, the New York DJ, Chris, the uh, supposed New York child molester, as 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 the one man said, and. Uh, <laughs> He was talking about how he wanted to buy the land and how he wanted to move into that house. And what he, he said, it would need some work. And then Hannah goes, oh, we're not going to be living there. And I just thought, I said to her, I said, you know, maybe when we're talking to people out here, maybe don't crush their dreams so hard. I you still know? don't know what's wrong with me saying that. <laughs> I don't. All, I, all I'm saying is the guy was talking about how he wanted to move there and how you were so like, oh, no, we would never. <laughs> yeah. so, like this is what I said to you and this is how I feel sometimes like you know as Dusty's talking to this DJ Chris I'm getting weird vibes from him so I'm standing kind of afar off but I'm also the kind of person that I don't like to just be a wallflower I mean I, I want to get into a conversation just to not be awkward right so sometimes people will be talking and I don't have much to add but I'll still try to add something yeah but when I'm in that position, usually when I say something, it, it don't make much sense. It, it's, it's a little bit fruitless. And then I can probably come across as dumb or ditzy or just confused. Well, I think those can be difficult situations because, you know, I find myself in that, in that place sometimes where I'm just in a circle of people. They're all talking and I'm like, I should be adding something to this. Yeah. Because if I continue on standing here, it's going to get harder to say something. Because I will have not spoken for so long that when people hear my voice, it should mean something. But if I can get something out quick that's uh, semi-meaningless, then it now it's already out there, right? So the next, they're like, all right, now they don't expect much. So the next, does that make sense? Yeah, like when I used to do improv, if it were a group ensemble, if I didn't get out there quick, I felt like then my entrance felt like, oh, here comes this guy. Because if you're watching an improv troupe and there's six people and one person hasn't gone in yet, yeah. after a while you're like, what are they up to? And then they finally come in, you want it to be big, you want it to win over everybody's hearts and minds. Yeah, that's that just brought me back into the mindset of improv yeah that was the real struggle of improv but it's like if you could jump in there quick even if what you did wasn't that funny you've already broke that ice well the other thing too and it might just be because i'm a woman but sometimes if i'm around like you talking to men or something like that i'm afraid that if i don't say anything i'm going to come across as like a b-i-t-c-h or standoffish like you know because you know i've been I've been accused of that before. 
but it's really not me judging the person. It's, it's just the struggle of, I don't have anything to say. And then, so if I force myself to say it again, I say something dumb. And it's, uh, yeah. And we're also living double lives sometimes, right? Like I got like a lot of blue collar stuff that I've done. I've worked a lot of blue collar places. That's what I'll be talking about later. But it's like now I'm not doing any job, right? Waylon Jennings has a line in a song where he says, I got my name painted on my shirt. I ain't no ordinary dude. I don't have to work, right? So, and I'm, I, I don't know exactly what that means, but I like the line. So I feel like now when I'm out talking to people, you know, I, I say, he goes, what were you in Syracuse for? And I say, oh, I do comedy. Then people want to get into that. But if I were like, he was like, oh, what were you in Syracuse for? And I was like, oh, I work at a paper company and I went there for a meeting. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he, that would not be that. And I don't know where I'm going with I've, this. But. I've heard that people that take a lot of Ubers have like a lie that they tell Uber drivers so they don't have to actually get into their whole life and they can just lie and almost either make it so it elongates the conversation or it cuts it short, depending on what you want. I need that, but I don't even know what I would do. Like the thing that I used to have is I would tell people that I sold pesticides and fertilizer to Lowe's and Home Depot. And I, but even that was not a conversation killer. People would go, oh, what's that all about? I need something that- You ever- should say like, I'm a stay at home dad. <laughs> uh, but I feel like people would want to talk about that too. I feel like people want to talk about everything, um, you know? So yeah. I just go into it. But so that's where we've been, where we're going. That's fun. That was exciting. And um, so what I want to do now is I'd like to uh, talk about Spectracide. Uh, I want to give a recap just so people understand if they didn't listen to part one. I do have a Spectracide part one out there. And who knows what I said? I got in depth with this. I got into it. I got in because there's a lot happening. In 2008, I took the job as a full time. But that's also when I started to ease back into comedy. So the two things seem to come really kind of converge here. And um, that's why I want to talk about it. I, I took this job first in 2004. I worked there just the spring and summer of 2004, 5, 6, and 7, working for, uh, you know, working for the company. But I was the assistant to a guy named Stu Barber, who was my boss. And... Um, and so in 2008, now late 2007, I had wrecked my car, maybe early 2007. Yeah. Early 2007. I maybe even late 2006. Doesn't matter. I didn't go back that far, but I wrecked my car. I had a, uh, a 1999 Saturn, uh, we like to call it the Pooh Bear edition, uh, cause it looked like the car that would have Pooh Bear sun, sun visors in the back seat to protect the kids. Uh, it had gray bumpers, five-mile-per-hour bumpers, so if you hit them, it wouldn't dent anything. And then it had dent-resistant door panels. It was uh, navy blue and a stick shift with no power steering, and I had driven it since since uh, just out of high school. So I had been driving it for, you know, about five, six years, and I flipped it one night drinking. I uh, flipped it into a marsh and wrecked it uh, with my friend named uh, my friend named Mike. I'm just going to use people's first names. I think that's okay. I'm not going to. Now talk. I understood you fled the scene, yet did not get charged with leaving the scene of an accident. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, luckily, 
I guess I crashed into a marsh, which was not owned by anyone, as far as I know. And the car was on the roof. And I got out. I was very confused. And a guy pulls up in a van and says, do you need a ride home? And we said, yes, we do. So he took us home uh, to the apartment where this this story will start off. And uh, I woke up the next morning and I, uh, I, well, that night I tried to call a couple of tow truck companies. And the second one I called, they answered and I said, hey, I need to get a car towed. And they said to me, the police already know about it. They're taking care of it. And I just said, okay. And I went to sleep. I was like, there's nothing good I can do tonight. Anything I do tonight is definitely going to incriminate me. So I just went to sleep. And I woke up the next morning, and it was a beautiful day. I felt good. And then a rush of memories came back to me. I had blacked out a portion, and then they just... And I was like, oh, man, I got some stuff to do today. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, I, and I dressed really nice, and um, I called the, found the tow truck company, and they said, uh, yes, we have it, but you have to go to the police department and get a release form, which is for every car that gets towed in Charleston, you need a release form from the police department. I did not know that at the time. And I dressed really nice. And I went down there and I spoke as proper as I could. And they never asked me any questions about it. And they gave me the release form. And so. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah. And so. So I was driving a 1982 Buick LeSabre. That's what I had. And so I'd been doing this job with Stu for years. And we had 10 stores in Charleston. Uh, We had uh, three Home Depots and 10 Lowe's stores. And we had picked up Orangeburg, making it 11. So we had all those stores we covered. And this guy named Antoine, that uh, he was working for another company at the time. And his job was about to end. And I got to hire someone to replace me. So I hired Antoine. So we had a, we had a fresh, young team. I mean, Stu was uh, probably 70 when, we, when he retired. We had a fresh, young team, me and Antoine, ready to go, ready to take on the competition. We, had, we p- competed against Scots and Bayer and Central, and Scots was the big dogs, and they had, guy, they had Matt, Donnie, and uh, another girl, I think Jennifer was her name, and they were, they were the team, you know. They were, all the low stores loved them. The Home Depots loved them. They were the, and, but, you know, I had been under Stu's wing, and as much as I appreciated Stu, uh, I felt like he was old and had an old approach to the job. I felt like now I could come in and I could wrangle this job. I mean, I had, uh, I had tried, you know, this is where I was at in my life. I was living in an apartment complex on James Island with my friend that I wrecked with and a friend I grew up with. And I had tried improv. I did a bunch of classes, did improv for a little while. I had tried stand-up, but ultimately I decided to go the safe route. Uh, I had, you know, work hard, pay my bills, drink on the weekends, and every night of the week. And I was just going to do that. I mean, I had a plan. I had a real estate plan. I was saving money. I had all these things going. I mean, drinking was definitely in my way. But I had all of these plans that Stu had helped me put into place. And I was not pursuing um, art at all. I was no longer pursuing uh, comedy or anything like that. And I was just enjoying I kept uh, one shift a week at, uh, at Hyman's. So I was working there on Saturday nights. Uh, that was keeping me, um, 
uh, I guess, keeping me in tune with the cool, hip, artsy college scene, right? So I wasn't strictly in the Lowe's and Home Depots where I got very little respect. Uh, my friend, uh, uh, well, I had a friend that worked for Bayer. Let's just call him Ben. Uh, he worked for Bayer, and uh, that was another competition. But me and him had been friends for a while, so he also had done a little improv and had quit drinking. So he could relate to me on a lot of stories, even though he had quit drinking and I was still hungover every day. And um, I remember one day we had a big, there was a big fair, a kind of a, a pesticide fertilizer fair, if you will, outside of the Mount Pleasant Lowe's. And we had, um, me and Antoine had a little tent set up. We had to borrow the tent from the Lowe's. We had a little tent set up. We had some inflatable things hanging, you know, like a, I had an inflatable bag of fertilizer uh, and an inflatable like fire ramp bag because that was big products for us. And then we had mosquito wipes and we had a cool little thing. We were out there handing out some pamphlets. The bear guy, he was out there just kind of hanging. And the Scots guys, the big guys, they had a 40 foot inflatable ant out there. They had a, they had a grill. They were grilling up hamburgers. They had real samples for people. But it was a big day. I was sweating. Um, and, you know, we had also we had the Central Pet and Garden Company or Pennington at the time. And one time, this was kind of the thing that we did for the job. We all battled Scots. They were the big dogs. We all battled them. So we would go in. One day we went into the Mount Pleasant store, which was our biggest store. And uh, me and the Central Pet guy, we went in there, and it was Scott's everything. Every display was Scott's. Everything was theirs. They had taken over the entire store. And me and this guy, this was a Friday, going into a big weekend. And the weekends are when you sell pesticides. And we tore down every display in that place. We threw, their, we threw the Scott's displays in the trash can we put all their products up in the overhead. I mean, we did a complete flip. It was all my stuff and his stuff throughout the whole show. I mean, we wrecked it. I mean, it looked great, but we wrecked the Scots guys. And we did. We were there for about six hours doing that. And as I'm pulling out of the store, I see the Scots guys pulling in. And I'm like, oh, no. And it was a lot of drama. I actually had to go back later that day and help repair some of it. They were pretty upset with us. But I think I went and had a beer or two with Stu at a restaurant before I went back. So what do you think so far, Hannah? Where are you at? Well, I'm always amazed that you even kept your job at Spectroside. Well, after I quit working with Stu, he would call me randomly and would want to meet at like a TGI Fridays or something like that where all the wait staff seemed to know his name and seemed to be very familiar with him. And then we would sit down. We actually wouldn't have a beer. He always drank vodka tonic. And we would have, I don't know, four or five vodka tonics at lunch together. So, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> Stu's a low-key alcoholic as well. Interesting. I Interesting so. choice of mentor. I mean, we were crushing them down there. I mean, yeah. we, would, we would get pretty, pretty loaded down there. And, um, and then you... Go ahead, get in your car, I assume, huh? And go back to the store, yeah. Right. Um, I was living at an apartment complex called Riverland Woods, which is on James Island, and I moved in there in 2006 with uh, Will and, and Mike, and we had a three-bedroom apartment, 
And we had a lot of parties there, a lot of, but in 2008, as the Spectreside job's rolling in, I take the Spectreside job in, um, like, I think January of 08, roughly January of 08. And in February is my sales meeting. Now, I'm dating a girl at the time, and she lets me borrow her car because the sales meeting is in Atlanta, and I drive a 1984 Buick LeSabre, right? So I borrow her car. I go. I do the sales meeting. The sales meeting's huge. I cover that whole sales meeting at the uh, end of Spectreside Part 1, the first one. It was wild. I was drunk the whole time. It was a mess, but I made it through, and then... Uh, that relationship is beginning to fall apart. And also all of my friendships are beginning to fall apart there in that apartment. Will moves back home. I, me and the girl break up. And me and Mike move into our own apartment, two-bedroom apartment, in that same building. We move from apartment K to apartment W, from the second floor to the third floor. And then we proceed on with our partying. I remember uh, the day... How old are you at this point? What is this? 2008. I'm 26. Okay. I'm probably 25 going into 26. Uh, there's a great song by Charlie Daniels covered by Chris Stapleton called, Was It 25 or 26? And it says, Thought I would die at 25, or was it 26? Those two years run together. Like another try at 25, or was it 26? Okay, so I've moved into a new apartment with just Mike. It's just me and Mike. Will moved back home to Opelika, and uh, me and Mike are on our own. We're, we're, we've moved from the second floor to the third floor of Riverland Woods, and we proceed on about our partying. I remember. The day, it's still in 2008, I got myself, I believe it was a 2000, um, it very well could have been a 2008 um, Dodge Avenger is what I got. Yeah, I got it from a, uh, a rental car place, which they say you should never do because people that rent cars just rag them out. But I was having what you would call a credit situation. I couldn't get anyone to give me a loan. I barely had any money for a down payment. No one would give me a loan. I went to all kinds of places. I even, Stu was trying to help me figure out how to get a loan. He said, you should go to some small place, take out a loan for, you know, so, you know, 500 bucks, 200 bucks, just some small loan that you can pay off so you can begin to build credit. But no one would give me this loan. I went to all kinds of places looking for these loans, and no one would give me a loan. No car company would let me buy a car. I went to the bank trying to get them to give me a loan. They're like, oh, no. So this rental car company would sell me the car, but my mom had to co-sign with me. So my mom co-signed with me on the car, and I got the rental car, and immediately I felt trapped by the job. Now, I came home in the car, and then me and Mike got in the car with a couple of beers, and we drove around the, the apartment complex um, parking lot, just all the way around this giant apartment complex, 
listening to John Anderson and just drinking beer. And I don't know why we did that, but we were just so excited that I had this nice, cool car. I mean, the Dodge Avenger was a cool car. It looked cool. It was black. It looked like a Charger, but it was a four-cylinder, right? So it looked like the muscle car, but it was weak. And uh, so me and Mike are cruising around. I mean, we're loving it. We're having such a great time. And then, But I immediately felt trapped by the job because... Even though I was getting paid well, I needed the car for the job. But now I needed the job for the car. Like, I couldn't really afford the car without the job. So I just felt trapped into it. And uh, I was in debt for the first time in my life. I mean, luckily, my dad bought me the Pooh Bear edition Saturn. So I never had to pay off a car uh, until this point. And now that I wrecked that car, my dad wasn't going to give me a new one. Now, when I got hired by Spectracide, I forgot this. I, I wrote this too, too low in my list. Uh, they, a guy named Jason was my boss, and Jason was from North Carolina, very country. I like Jason a lot. He was my first official boss as uh, what they called a uh, – uh, what did they call my job? I don't know. It ended up being called district manager, but that's not what it started off. I forget what it was. A merchandising coordinator potentially is what I was. Um, and Jason had just been promoted and I had just been promoted and Jason met me in Orangeburg, South Carolina to sign my new hire paperwork at a restaurant. Do you know where he took me? TGI Fridays? Burger King. I'm not even kidding. I'm getting hired for the job. He took me to a Burger King. Like, I don't eat. Like, even back then, I was coming off of Burger King. Like, I, I continued to eat fast food for a while, but I was just like, I was shocked. I mean, I thought my boss will at least take me to a TGI Fridays. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he took me to a Burger King. But it was fine. I liked Jason. Jason would come down, and I would tell him about all the places I would get drunk at. He loved it, thought it was hilarious. Um because I was getting my job done. I knew how to do this job. I had, uh, if I could figure out how to show it, I had, there was a, uh, uh, they used to have a, a, a booklet that would go around once a month and it would have, we would have to take pictures of our displays and send them in to this company. Send them in to our boss and then he would send them in to the bigger bosses. Well, in the Mount Pleasant Lowe's, I got my fertilizer display in this monthly bulletin. And it felt good. I mean, I was rocking it. I mean, I was doing the job that I knew I could do all along. I mean, I, you know, I was doing it Stu's way, and I felt like there was a better way, right? I retained a lot of what Stu was telling me, but I felt like there was a better way. Now, simultaneously, while I'm working this job, while I'm doing these things, I have now, we've moved up to the third floor, and... I started to make friends with these. Uh, there was a, a, an apartment of girls down the down the way. Uh, there were three girls. I remember talking to them one time, and we were at. They were having a party. I was down there, and I was just standing in a circle with a bunch of girls, and we were all talking. It was just we were getting real chatty. We were just laughing, and they were talking about where they all went to college or what what schools they're going. You know, this and that. And they asked me, and they go, "Where'd you go to college?" And obviously, I didn't go to college. And I never tell these lies. But in this moment, things were going so well 
that I just thought, this is fun. Everybody's having a good time talking about colleges. If I now say, oh, I never went to college, I feel like it really drops me down. So I just said, I went to Auburn, right? Because I grew up right next to Auburn. I can talk about Auburn in a decent way that you might not know I didn't go there. Unless you're asking me about specific study halls and buildings and professors. Uh, yeah, it, it's going to come become pretty clear pretty fast that I didn't go there. But if we can go, I went to Auburn. I loved going to this bar. I can talk all the old school bars in Auburn. And so I did it. And, uh, and it went great. Uh, it went great. We laughed and we, we moved on. And one girl was like, oh, my brother goes there. Uh, fast forward down the road, maybe even later 2008, uh, their brother came to town who had gone to Auburn and they wanted to come. They wanted us to meet and I hid from them. <laughs> and then later I confessed that I lied about going to Auburn, that I didn't go to college at all. And it did change things. but we had a good time I was so drunk back then I remember I was hanging out with those girls because the way these uh, apartment buildings worked is they were three stories high and all the doors were on the inside but the hallway in the middle was open air so on the ends of these apartments you had this almost like a little porch thing especially if you're on the third floor the stair landing was like a little porch and we didn't have porches. So we would all stand out there and smoke cigarettes and drink. And I'm hanging out there with those girls and I'm jamming some Neil Young. I mean, we we're kicking it. We're really jamming. And then this guy, I'm in my mid twenties. He's probably in his mid forties, early fifties comes rolling up to the apartment. He's moving in and I'm just out there drunk jamming and it turns out he's a huge Neil Young fan. It was in a band. His name was John. And uh, we became buddies. We, all, we used to hang out all the time. And he was in a band. And uh, uh, one of the other guys that worked at uh, Riverland Woods was in a band. And now, this was the fella, John, that also an alcoholic. Yeah. Who, who struggled with it. <laughs> and I do believe his... His family also had some issues with it. Well, I think so. I think that was part of it. He was from, you know, up north, and he was kind of taking a break. I think his wife, him and his wife separated, and he was kind of taking a break. Um, Now, his family did eventually end up all moving down. Um, But, yeah, I mean, he was a drinker too, and I guess he had been off alcohol, but, uh, was was playing around with it a little bit, and I was the wrong neighbor. <laughs> yeah, and you were the enabler for a little while. The third floor, I knew almost everybody up there, and we would, you know, on the weekends would have gatherings, you know, and we would go in and out of each other's apartment. I mean, it was pretty fun. There was that a, sounds like a good time. Yeah, there was a guy there. Landon was his name. I'm just remembering him. He was young in college, real country. He was hanging out, so he had an apartment. These girls had an apartment. I had an apartment. Now, Mike moved out shortly after moving in with me. Mike moved out. He had some problems, and he had to get out of there. That was really about the end of our friendship. We had a little time. We were really good friends for a couple of years there, 
probably three or four years, best friends, inseparable, honestly. But then some stuff went down, not between me and him, but between him and some stuff downtown Charleston. And he got he got into some fights, and he got worried, and he just kind of moved out of town. And uh, so I would see him occasionally, but it was really kind of the end, uh, which was sad. Uh, but um, Who was your, your new roommate? Well, my new roommate was a guy named Milton. And Milton also worked with me at Hyman's. So Milton was a real movie buff, right? He had tons of movies, and he really expanded my horizons in the movie world. He introduced me to the Coen brothers. Milton's the kind of guy that knows directors. We used to watch the Oscars at our house, and Milton would invite his other friends, which were also a lot of them were my friends too, and he would have a big Oscars party. He would try to watch all the movies that were Oscar-nominated before it came, and then it was a big deal. He loved it, and, and I thought that was a lot of fun. And, uh, but, you know, so in 2008, though, I have also, uh, later in 2008, I came back to comedy. Now, I always say that this is where I started comedy. But I started comedy in like 2004, but I only did it a few times and then I quit. 2008 is when I came back. My friend, another friend, John, um, invited me to do comedy and I came and I did this Letters of the Alphabet bit at Theater 99. And John, John B, we'll say John B. And, um, and it was great. I did this Letters of the Alphabet bit at Theater 99. It crushed. I made instant friends with people. It was amazing. I had this great buzzing feeling about me. Even though I didn't drink, I went up and I did the show sober, and I just had a real wonderful buzz and, and glow about me. And I text John later that night, and I said, I want to do that again. So I really got a fire, and I started taking classes at Theater 99. And then there was a competition that was coming up, the, the annual Charleston stand-up comedy competition. And I had talked to John T., uh, my roommate, my friend at Riverland Woods, and he said I should be in that contest. He said, you're the best comic in town. You should be in that contest. And I was like, I think I missed the deadline. Well, he writes an email to the theater, basically scolding them, telling them that I should be in this. And I was like, whoa, take it easy. And they offered it to me, and I was like, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to come in like that. So... I just kept doing stand up and um you know over the next over the next year or so and um so that was my intro back into that. Let's see what else we got here. Um do you have any questions? Well, what I'm hearing is that now I know the end of this story, but it feels like comedy's really pulling you out of some shady debauchery. Well, it's, it's hard to say because what's happening right now is I'm pursuing this job. I'm actively pursuing this job as my career. I have lots of drinking friends. I've accumulated between the, I just have accumulated so many drinking friends. I, I just had moved from the beach. I, prior to this, I was living on Folly Beach. I'm working at Hyman's. I got other friends from Lowe's and Spectreside that I'm drinking with. I got people at my apartment complex I'm drinking with. Um, I don't remember exactly. This might have been the year that me and John T. did a radio show. We did a. He was going to the College of Charleston, and we did uh, Polluted Airwaves was the name, and that was his his choice of a name. And we were doing college radio. It went pretty unsuccessfully because John said, 
I don't want you to drink while we do this. And I was like, well, I'm not interested. You know, I mean, I like. So when you say you're pursuing this, are you talking about specter side or comedy? Specter side. You're, I mean, okay. that's my job. I mean, I'm, I'm so happy to have had this job because I, I got this job in 2004. And each year that I went back, I got a little bit of a raise. But now I had taken this job on, which was seemingly my career. I mean, this job had health benefits. I had dental vision. I could go to the doctor whenever I wanted. I had a car allowance. I had vacation days. I was making more money than I had ever made. I was like, this is amazing. And I was really living the life. I mean, on the weekends, me and my buddies, we were buying, you know, we were having uh, fish boils and we were buying crab legs and kegs of beer. We would, you know, buy buying a, uh, uh, you know, a, a blue moon keg just for the day to hang out. And I'd be at parties talking to people about pesticides and talking to them about how to grow their lawn and get rid of their weeds. This was 2008. And, you know, it took me till 2020 when I bought a house to actually get to put that to use. And our yard does look good, though, doesn't it? It does. And uh, so in the midst of all this, are you at any point looking inward, reflecting and thinking, maybe I have a problem? Well, I'm not sure if it's 2008 or 2009 when this happens. A lot of these years are foggy. But John T., who was living in the building, gave me uh, a big blue book, which is the Alcohol Anonymous book. Alcoholics Anonymous book. He gave this to me and he said, you know, he said, I feel like, he said, I'm an alcoholic. He said, I feel like you got a lot of the tendencies that I have. And he said, just read the book. And I did read the book. And when I read that book, it became aware to me that I was an alcoholic. Now, I've got a bunch of diaries. I mean, I don't have a bunch of diaries. I got a couple of journals. And that one of them I would make periodic entries into. From the early 2000s up until 2015, I think I made random entries into that. And if you read these diaries, I mean, 2004, I was telling myself to stop drinking. But in that sense, it was just that I would drink too much and I would get out of hand. And I was like, I need to cut that out. I need to stop doing this. But by 2008, I mean, I'm drinking every day and I've embraced it now. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, oh, no, I'm a drinker. This is what I do. I remember waiting tables one time and a table telling me that her she was like, oh, he's diabetic. He can't drink anymore. And I remember just feeling a bit of sadness that this guy couldn't drink anymore. And I thought, what would that be like for me if I had to quit drinking? I'd love drinking. Um, so that's where I was at with it. You know, so you're just you're flying high. Everything is going great for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm having I mean, I like these girls down at the end of the hallway. And I think honestly, I think I had an opportunity uh, to, you know, make some headway with with all three. Not at one time, but, you know, at, on an individual basis, I had an opportunity here, mess it up. Opportunity here, mess it up. Opportunity there, mess it up because I was just drunk all the time. Right. Something I would be you know, kind of talking to one of them, it'd be going well, and then I would get drunk, and then I would just blow it. Like, one girl's ex-boyfriend came one night, and I made fun of him f a lot. And I think that that it really 
uh, upset her. Like, I think that if I'd have made a joke or two, it would have been all right. But I went, I went pretty hard. I mean, and you got mouthy. Yeah. And it was fine. I mean, they probably are married to each other now. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter. But I'm just saying that was the worst thing that was happening for me. The gym, uh, all I had to do was walk around a fence and I was at a gym. I used to go to the gym a lot. I was really working out around 2008. That was the most buff I ever got. I actually got pretty buff and I wasn't well-defined, but I was pretty buff and I hurt my shoulder and I ended up going to the doctor, getting it checked out. And it was because I was lifting too much. I was going too hard, too fast. And, um, so, I mean, life was good for me. I mean, I was, uh, you know, an alcoholic, but I had a good job. Uh, I was doing well. I was having a really good year with the company. Uh, Antoine started to get irritated with me by the end of the year because I would have him clock me in sometimes. I was like, listen, I, I even was so lenient with him, like, as a boss. I was like, listen, I'm saying let's get here at 9, but let's get here approximately at 9. You know what I mean? If you get here at 9, clock me in. You know, and uh, he was pretty irritated with me by the end. But uh, I thought we had a good year. Um, and then, you know, as that as 2008 came to a close, a lot of stuff happened with the company and the company drastically changed. Um, and uh, I will get into that as we get into next week, which will be 2009. OK. Now, maybe we have time for. Um, a, I think there's a book over there. Will you see if there's a book next to that chair? I think we have time to do a little, it's, it would be on a table next to it. Do you see it? Yeah. I think we have time to maybe do a little advice to comics. What do you think? Do you feel like this made sense? I think so. I mean, I just feel like it would be so easy to just do the whole Spectre side thing all in one, um, all in one episode, but I feel like we could talk about it a little bit at a time and have some fun with it, really spread it around a bit. So let's talk about this. Uh, last week, we talked about finding your brand. Prior to that, we talked about being yourself and unique, right? Yes. And... What about, oh, what about this one? What do you think about this? This is just a topic I wrote down, which is fun to me because it seems contradictory. The, the, the title would be Stop Listening to Podcast Advice. Right. What do you think about that one? Well, it's certainly ironic. Right. That's what I meant. Did I say contradictory? Maybe it's the same. I do believe in that, but I think it's maybe just more so limit your intake of advice because well, you can like on my Twitter feed, I, I follow so many like self-help motivational Christians people and it's all this feel good advice, but then all kind of jumbled together. It sort of nullifies it all. Well, that's, I guess the point. I, I mean, I'm obviously not like stop listening to advice, but I just think as a topic, uh, I think that you're right, limiting it because um, I think also 
realizing that there is no easy path, right? There is no, you're going to, you know, you're going to get right into it and you're just going to, you know, five tips to make you a working comic. You know what I mean? It's like, I know I did a 10 part series, but those were not 10 tips to become a working comic. Uh, so, you know, I think that oftentimes you can, you can overload on the amount of advice and you can just overwhelm yourself. Like I got a friend and he lives in LA and he always says, you know, I know you got to be out here 10 years. I know it takes 10 years to really, but he says that and I don't feel, and I believe that I think it takes a long time, but I don't think he's putting in the work. He's just letting that amount of time go by, right? He's like, I got to be out here 10 years. And it's like, well, maybe, but you also need to be working it. I think that attitude too of just blindly following the old adages of, oh, you have to get on stage every night. You have to write every day for an hour. You know, you have to network, do this, do that. I think what happens is, if you assume, all right, three years to get a late night, five years to get on, you know, some sort of sitcom, 10 years to get a Netflix, something like that. And then that doesn't happen for you. And you see someone that's been doing it for like two years, just blow up. All of a sudden you start complaining and you're like, well, no, I worked harder than this person. And the reality is it doesn't really matter how hard you work. It matters what your output is and the quality of your output and right. how it's how it's deemed well yeah i mean i think that yeah i think you could be right with it doesn't matter how hard you work i think it's still important to work hard but you do but it, it that's not no one rewards you just because you're a hard worker right not not yeah i mean not just because you're a hard worker not yeah i mean not 100 percent. no i mean i think you will get more uh by being a hard worker than 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 not uh as a rule but yeah i mean just because you're working hard somebody else could just come up with five minutes that's really really funny and funnier than the one that you've worked really hard on and get something when they didn't work and you did you know also everybody has such a different way of looking at hard work i mean i know people from toronto who you know, would say, oh, I work so hard. I've been doing this for eight years and I can't get on late night. I can't do this. I'm like, yeah, but you also smoke weed every day and don't write new jokes a lot. Like I know you're, you're technically going through the motions, but uh, there's a lot that you're doing that doesn't really seem to be helping you. I also think that it doesn't matter that much how long you've been doing it if it's not your full-time thing. Right. Like, mm -hmm. and, and I guess there, there's a little leeway there. Like if it, if it's not your full-time thing, but you're working really hard at it, really working a lot, really doing a lot of weekends, but it's like, you know, people can say I've been doing it for 10 years, but if you've been doing it for 10 years and you've been doing one mic a month, uh, you know, but somebody else is doing every open mic, you know, five nights a week you know, in a month, they've done 20 performances to your one, you know? So, like, if you do one a month in a year, obviously you do 12. They could do more than that in one month. So Yeah, and just to bring it back to the, your topic, which is, you know, don't listen to advice. I think that 
you know, when you're listening, the reality is we, we, everyone's listening to podcasts now and so many quote unquote famous comedians or, you know, comedians with a big platform have podcasts and they all share their story and their story is true for them. But a lot of these guys, if they're 40 and above came up before there were podcast advice. So they, through virtue of their own, you know, natural true north found their way. But now people in their 20s are listening to these podcasts saying, well, okay, I have to do what Bill Burr did. But Bill Burr did what he did during his time. You have to, you know, I think it's so important to kind of sieve out all this excess advice because it's, I think it can just cloud you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's what I think too. And I think because that's what happens with, with my friend. I have a friend and he listens to a lot of podcasts. And, you know, I'll try to help him. I'll try to give him advice. Not not necessarily advice, but, you know, just buddy to buddy, people who used to do comedy together a lot, being like, hey, man, you know, why don't you try to do this? Why don't you try to do this? And he's like, oh, I know. I know I got to do. I know, and I, I know I got to do this, this, and this. And he can list those things off. And those things are uh, what he does have to do. But he already knows those things. So when I'm telling him that, that from a place of experience, it means nothing. Because he's like, oh, I already know that. Right? So it's like, if you already know it and you're not doing it, then you're just not trying. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So I think that you can get so wrapped up in um in just listening to advice and following this and that and this and that that you forget to you know there was Charles Bukowski you know in a in a in a poem that he had that I read one time he said um um if you want to write write if you want to be a photographer take pictures if you want to be an artist draw right and it seems so simple but it's like so many people, they're like, oh, I want to be a comic. And they do all these other things, but just being a comic. Like, it's like, you want to be a comic? Write jokes. Tell the jokes. You know, write and perform jokes. Like, that is the main thing. But so many people are so ready to do everything else. They're like, oh, I got to get a website. I got to get T-shirts. I got I to gotta do this many mics a week. And it's like, just do comedy and just enjoy yourself. In 2008, when I was coming back, that's what was happening is I was just doing comedy. When I was doing it in 2004 and 2005, it was because I was lost and I didn't have any friends. And um, I thought, oh, being funny will help me make friends. And and in 2008, when I did it again, I did it just for the sheer joy of doing comedy. And so I was pursuing this job as a pesticide salesman, hoping to excel in that and just doing comedy for fun because I enjoy doing it. And I think that's the key is just enjoying doing it. This may have shut off. I don't know. But uh, uh, just uh, it's about to, though. Just um, just cut it off and cut it back on real fast. Boom. So, you know, just doing it, doing comedy for the love of doing it is what it's all about. Otherwise, um, it, it otherwise it feels like work. Don't let it feel like work until it has to. Does that make sense? That, yeah. Does that feel good? Yeah. 
Um, and I did have a thing. I wanted to try to, you know, keep the, keep the flow going and do a little religious talk. But I feel like I've covered a lot of stuff. And, uh, you know, just pray for the country. I think that you could pray. I think that uh, no matter what uh, you believe, what political side you're on, who you're rooting for, what I think everybody, whether what, no matter what political side you're on, I think we all want to see the country healthy, to see the country healed to see the country uh, without a, uh, a virus that's shutting everything down. So, you know, pray for the country. Pray that the country heals, um, you know. And don't, I feel like it's important for us to not put our own opinions on a prayer, you know. Like, don't be like, oh, you know, praying like, oh, I just, I just hope Joe Biden wins and fix, you know. It's like, just pray that the country's fixed uh, because God can use whoever, you know what I mean? So, it's just easier and, and less stress on yourself if you just, you know, pray uh, that the country heals and that we, that it's better for everyone. I think that's what we want. Ultimately, we all have our views on how could it be better? How could this happen? How could this happen? But in general, I think we all just want things to be better, fairer, safer, um, wonderful for everyone. You know what I mean? So. Um, with that being said, I, I feel good. I feel like we've had a great podcast. We've had a fun time. Yeah, it's been it's been really interesting and fun talking to you. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to have you back. The listeners uh, have been messaging me, telling me how happy they are that you're back. Oh, you're so sweet, Dusty. Well, no, it's not me. I mean, I'm happy you're back, but it's the listeners. They're, they're happy you're back. Thanks, listeners. Yeah, I mean, they've... The uh, the message is loud and clear that they were bored just listening to me talk. I don't think so. No one could get bored of that baritone. Well, I don't know. But I am happy that I got your microphone fixed this week. It sounds so much better. You know, I listened to a chunk of the podcast at some point since we've started again, and I thought it sounded fine. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, it sounds really good now. Well, really good is better than fine. Yes, it is. As Stu used to tell me, I would clean the outside and then I would come in and he would say, how does it look out there? And I would say, it looks pretty good. And he would go, pretty good? And then I would end up going back out there. And then after a while, I caught on. He'd go, he'd go pretty good? And I'd go, real good. Mm. And then he, would, then he would ask me, how does it look? And I'd go, real good, Stu. Real good. <laughs> but you know what I also... And then you guys would throw down five... <laughs> Gin and tonics at TJF Fridays. See, we never drank together when Stu worked, when he worked there. But once Stu retired, I mean, we would just go to a thing and he would go, you want to have a drink? And then, I mean, we'd have, we, have, we would have quite a few. And then I would have to go back to work. I mean, usually I'd have several with him and then just go. That would make work a lot more fun, huh? Yeah, and then I'd go clock into a store and just go sit in the car and smoke cigarettes or go somewhere else and keep drinking. I mean, there was a lot going on in 2008. Next episode, 2009. Wow. Where things take some turns. Uh, this is going to, you know, this is going to be a bit, uh, I feel like maybe a bit more of a, a racy uh, episode. More of you lying to women, I guess, huh? No. Okay. No, I mean, I never did that. I, I never did that. But that one time I was in that position and I was like, 
Oh, no. Well, the thing that I've learned about you is you're a good liar, which makes me very uncomfortable. I'm not a good liar. You are though. a good liar. I'm not good. I didn't, it never, it never pans out for me. <laughs> well, that's because you feel guilty, but yeah. The lies never pan out for me. So it's a good lesson. All right, then. All right. Well, uh, thanks for tuning in. We're having a good time. I like another try at 25, or was it 26? I like another try at 25, or was it 26?